Well, it's been far too long since I've had a, a Lord of the Rings analogy or story in my sermon. I mean, it has to be several months. And so I just want to, A, I want to apologize, and B, I just want to start off on the right foot tonight. So just bear with me. So Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is just such an important piece of literature, writing, thinking, cultural, and spiritual reflection. It's a book, right, about friendship and loyalty, about good and evil, temptation and triumph, earth care and industrialization, simplicity and striving, power corrupted and reluctant leadership exercising just power. And there's more to it, right? There's so much goodness in there. In the story, there's a malevolent darkness that begins to cover the land of Middle-earth. The elves, the former defenders against great evils, and the wisest and fairest of the inhabitants of Middle-earth, besides the Astari, and anyway, if you want to get technical, but okay, so um, they're, they're starting to leave in the saga of the Lord of the Rings, and so the main source of resistance against the oncoming evil is humanity. The great kingdom of Gondor to the south, rangers roaming throughout the lands, and in the north, the proud people of Rohan. Rohan is led by King Theoden, who is brave and wise and strong. His son, uh, Theodred, is his rightful heir, and his nephew, Eomer, is a fierce captain of his formidable riders, mounted warriors who roam the grasslands, the Rohirrim. They keep peace and protect the inhabitants of their kingdom from the encroaching enemies of darkness. Few military forces could match the bravery of the riders of Rohan or their mighty king, and yet it is not military might that casts a shadow over the king or his kingdom, at least not at first. In the story, King Theoden becomes something other than himself. He begins to listen to the crooked counsel of one of his advisors, aptly named Wormtongue. The more he deviates from his true identity, the more he listens to Wormtongue over and against his familiar counsel, the more King Theoden is corrupted and utterly taken over by evil. And the more he's compromised, the more he gives himself over to paranoia and the abuse of power and to fear. Eventually, his madness gets his son and his heir to the throne killed, and he alienates Eomer, his nephew and his greatest warrior. On the surface of things, both in the book and in the world, kingdoms come and go. Battles are won and lost based on strategies and technologies and human factors like courage and skill and grit and desire. But what Tolkien so creatively displays throughout his epic novel is that there are spiritual powers at scene that are very real. Powers for good, powers for evil, powers that are very real. And if tampered with on the one hand or ignored on the other, people will suffer and so will creation. This evening we pick up the story we've been walking through in 1 Samuel And we left off a a couple weeks ago. Uh, The story, of course, reads like this epic drama of genre-bending adventure soap opera. I don't even know if that's a thing, adventure soap opera. Uh, Yeah, survival. Who's blasphemy? Blasphemy. It's got got a bit of Lord of the Rings in, in this first Samuel saga. It's got a dash of Homer's Iliad. It's got a tablespoon of Game of Thrones, a pinch of Shakespeare, and faint notes of Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
Come on now. It's a story that includes heartbreak and triumph, overcoming great odds, and the ashes in your mouth reality of what happens when we fall to our own hubris. The story includes the rise and fall of kings, violence and tenderness, faithfulness and treachery. It's a story that includes all of these, these things, but is not about really any of these things. It's a story that contains multi-dimensional characters, but it's not the characters whom the story makes the focal point. It's not a morality tale about the perils of Saul's disobedience, although if you could learn something from that, go ahead, that's a great thing. And it's not a story about a great prophet, but if you can learn a few things from Samuel himself, that's, that's a win, go for it. And it's certainly not a story that exalts the character of David, as if someone we're supposed to mimic. I mean, just give it a few more chapters and you'll see why that'd be a bad idea. The story and the series we're preaching through that I've titled The Rise of the King is really the saga of the living God who works in and through people to accomplish his acts of salvation. He takes a nation that is absolutely headed toward destruction and he sets them on a course to deliver the deliverer, Jesus himself. In 1 Samuel 18, we saw how God was at work in and through David, and we paid special attention to how the different characters in the story responded to David and his anointedness, his God with usness. And as we enter chapter 19 this evening, we'll continue to remain rooted in the story, but I'm going to point some details out along the way. And we're going to be paying special attention to the powers in play behind the flesh and blood, behind the intrigue and behind the strategies of human beings. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is um, not just some dusty old text, but it is alive and active. It's actually really interesting. And Lord, we pray that it would be more than a story for us, that we would hear your voice, that we would hear your gospel in it, and we need your help for that. So come to us, open our minds and our hearts, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at 1 Samuel 19, and I'm just going to walk us through the first seven verses to, to kick it off, and then we'll just kind of go piece by piece. Here's the first seven verses. Now, Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find anything, then I'll tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck down the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. I mean, you saw it and rejoiced. Why then would you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Now Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. Okay, so King Saul has been going mad for a while now as we've been tracking through this story. 
His continued disobedience to God has led to his demise to such an extent that God himself, I think in chapter 15, said that Saul would fall, that his reign is over, and and that he's going to raise up another person, of course, that's David. Now, because the Lord is with David, something else is going on behind the scenes. God's favor is on David, and this has is, this is bent the hearts of Saul's own children, Jonathan and his daughter, Michal, who married David. It's bent their hearts toward loyalty to David. One might be reminded of Jesus' words to those, those who do not hate their father and mother for my sake are not worthy of me. Jesus, of course, is not talking about like actually the feeling of hatred toward people as if following the Lord would require us to hate anybody. Loving and hating in the ancient world was a lot less about feelings and a lot more about loyalties. So in chapter 18, we saw how Jonathan loved David, which means he was pledging his covenant loyalty to him. And here Jonathan is expressing hatred in the sense of breaking his covenant to his dad, Saul, and trusting instead in God's anointed, who is King David, or future King David. So Jonathan not only warns David to beware of Saul, but he also goes to his dad and pleads as a voice of reason on behalf of David. A move that could have been interpreted as treason. So Jonathan's really taking a risk here. And as a result, Saul relents from his purpose to kill David, at least for a time. Now let's pick it up in verse 8 through 10. When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, And David was playing a harp in his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped into the night. Once again, we've got David going out to battle the Philistines and securing the victory for Saul. The king Meanwhile, the leader of the armies, the one in that culture and time was supposed to go out and lead his army, he's back home on his couch doing whatever he's doing, right? And and while David's victory should have brought great fame to Israel, safety to Israel, and glory to Saul as the king, Saul's greatest warrior is David. And when David wins a victory, it should bring honor and glory to Saul. But instead of being proud of David or excited about David's victory, Saul gets insanely jealous. And yet again, we read about this evil spirit from the Lord who came upon Saul. And we're reminded that there are forces in play in the unseen world. Now, scholars are split over the nature of the evil spirit in this story. Part of the problem simply comes from the cultural context of the time. The time that this happened and the time of the people that this was written to. So this was written to a people in a setting who had a different worldview, like completely different than you and I. So like when I say angels and demons, like just what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Just hold it there in your mind. Angels and demons, right? Now whatever you picture you have in your mind, unless you're like a wicked smart Bible scholar, like you probably have an image in your mind that is greatly informed by film and literature and Dante, you know? It's it's probably greatly informed by things other than Scripture. We might conceive of 
angels and demons, God and Satan, spirits and phantoms, all influenced by pop culture and things that we've heard, and maybe even things that you've been taught by preachers and teachers of, how shall I say, various degrees of expertise in these matters. The same was true for the authors, or the author of this text, right? The people who lived in the ancient Near East thought very differently about the spiritual world, very differently even than the Greeks and Romans. Those are the ones who influenced the New Testament. So we can't even just look at the New Testament, what they say about the spiritual world, and superimpose it on the old, because we're talking different worldviews. And the Greeks and Romans in the New Testament uh, period had a different worldview about spirits and, and the spiritual world still than the medieval church, let alone our current demythologized, and I would say remythologizing culture. And you can ask me what I mean by that later. We don't have a clear-cut chart, like on a hierarchy or what, like, like I kind of wish that there was a, uh, I know a lot of kids are into Pokemon, and I was looking at these Pokemon cards, and there's like, a hierarchy, right? And like this one has these powers and, and, and you know, like magic and yeah, they have powers. Keep going. Yeah, that's about all I know. But I, yeah, or like D&D has like characters. I never played that either. But I know stuff about those cards and hierarchy. And we just don't, like the Bible doesn't give that about the spiritual realm. Like we don't have this pecking order and all of their superpowers and what they look like. And, and we, we, we don't really have any of that stuff. I kind of wish we did. So here's the warning, to try and make too much out of vague passages of Scripture when we've lost so much of the way that ancients actually thought and described these phenomenon will lead to error. And the more weight we put on our hypotheses, the more specific we try and get and the taxonomies we try and make about the spiritual world, the greater potential we have for just grossly missing the point. Okay, so that's, that's one difficulty in interpreting this. The other difficulty is the Hebrew language. The text says that an evil, or in Hebrew, ra, spirit from Yahweh, came upon Saul. And that Hebrew word, rach, you got to have a little bit of that in there, uh, can mean evil, but it also means bad, destruction, disaster, dreadful, trouble, deadly. That's just to name a few. And sometimes it's a word associated with God acting with ra toward X, Y, or Z. Like sometimes God warns Israel, hey, you're going towards idolatry. I'm going to raw you. I'm going to, you know, bring judgment or destruction or I'm going to discipline you. And sometimes he does that to another nation who's uh, oppressing Israel, right? So I'm going to raw the nations on your behalf. Not raw, raw, not cheer them on, but, you know, destroy or to judge, right? And, and so it has such a semantic range of meaning uh, that we need to be careful not to put too much specificity and are talking about the nature and origin of this evil spirit in this passage. Okay, now that I've muddied the water for you, let me tell you why I did that. Um, it's okay. The result is the same. The passage tells us two important things. Let me bring clarity now that I've muddied. First, for the second time in two chapters, Saul is hucking a spear <laughs> at his greatest warrior, his most loyal subject, his son-in-law, the anointed of God, David, right? Something is seriously wrong with this man. David has done nothing to Saul. He's like your best employee, your best friend, right? And you just all of a sudden, I'm gonna kill him. He's too nice to me. He's bringing too much, you know, good business to the company or whatever it is. You know, it's, it's insane. Saul has set himself 
against the anointed of God. And therefore, Saul has set himself against the will of God. It's dangerous. Number two, it tells us that there are powers in play behind the scenes. You see a theme here in the sermon? That means that when we mess with the will of God, in this case, the will of God to bring Saul down and to bring David up, there is more than meets the eye. There are forces that all the strength or money or intelligence in the world cannot compete with. And all of that should give us pause. Are there things that you and I are passionate about that might not be the same things that God is passionate about? Another way to put that, is my will aligned with God's will? If it is not, we might find ourselves investing our lives in causes that just won't stand. We might find ourselves meeting with God's invincible resistance. And two, this should give us confidence. No matter how bleak things may look, no matter the losses we might incur, God's will, his plan to bring shalom and new creation into this world will not be defeated. And I've got to hear that and preach to myself that on a regular basis, and that's why I'm always saying it to you. We've got to bank on the promises of God to bring this whole thing around, even though we might not see the promised land like Moses never saw it personally. 11 through 17. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. This guy's persistent. But Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michal led David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. Michal took the household idol and laid it on the bed. Yes, that's weird. Um, <clears throat> and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me, his bed, that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was in the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? And Michal said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? Soap opera, right? Adventure soap opera. That's what I'm talking about. Not Star Wars. Who said that? In this section, we see the Saul, that Saul is in this relentless pursuit of David. This time, he sends assassins. This is how crazy, right? He sends assassins to his daughter's house. Remember, Michal is his daughter uh, to kill her husband, his son-in-law. In the beginning of the chapter, his own son, Jonathan, kind of intervenes on David's behalf. And this time, it's his own daughter who lies in an effort to buy time for David's escape. There's a fun little detail about um, the fact that David and Michal have a household idol in their home. I, that's quite strange, right, for an Israelite. Um, there's all kinds of things that you can hit me up afterwards. We can talk about our Bible study on Wednesday, but uh, I don't really have time to unpack that. But uh, there, is, there is a fun nuance here. The author doesn't really make a big deal out of it because in a way the story makes fun of idolatry. Because it's amusing to like an original reader that the, in the face of this great danger, right, that the only thing an idol would be good for isn't to deliver you or to pray to or to do anything of value it's just a dummy 
sitting in a bed to pretend it's, it's, a, it's a sleeping body, right? So that's about all it's good for. And I think that an original reader from an Israelite perspective, reading this originally in captivity in Babylon would have a good chuckle at that. So anyway, there's your little nugget for the day. Uh, the powers are in play behind this scene to be sure, but whatever that idol represented, it isn't one of the powers in play. Yahweh is clearly in charge of this narrative. He's clearly in charge of this story arc. So, let's finish it out. Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him that Saul, all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed and Naoth, and he told Saul, saying, or it was told to Saul, so Saul's got his little spies everywhere, um, that David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul so that they also prophesied. And then when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again a third time and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Siku. You guys been to the large well by Siku? It's really beautiful. Um, By the way, that's what we call uh, uh, a mark of authenticity when people just name a place because the readers would have known exactly what they're talking about, right? So yeah, when he gets to the big well that's at Siku and he asked, uh, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, behold, they're at Naoth Ramah. And he proceeded there to Naoth and Ramah and the Spirit of God came upon him also so that he went about prophesying continually until he came to Naoth Ramah, and he also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all day and all night. Therefore, they still say, is Saul Saul also among the prophets? Saul tries to kill David with the spear, tries to assassinate him in his own home, And that is the last time that David will ever be in the presence of Saul in his royal court. David will never again play the harp for Saul or be in the court with Saul. After this account, he'll never be in his presence except as an adversary. And one might expect a fugitive like David to flee to the south, to Judah, the place where he's from, the place he's most likely to have loyal family members, and friends. But you know, after Luke Skywalker is nearly killed by Darth Vader in Empire Strikes Back, he doesn't go back to Tatooine. He goes to Dagobah, to the Jedi Master Yoda, right? So, so Samuel, uh, that, that's exactly where, where David goes, to, the, to his master Samuel. He goes up north, right? And Samuel had apparently been uh, creating this guild of prophets. Remember, Samuel was this boy who was set aside for, uh, for God by his mother before he was even born, and now he's matured to the place where he's actually training future prophets in Israel. Uh, time passes, and Saul finds out where David is hiding, and so he sends men to apprehend David. But when they get there, they encounter this school of prophets practicing their craft, and they're, they're overcome by the Spirit of God, which causes them to get caught up in the frenzy and the action. Now, what happens isn't exactly clear. The word here for prophesying has little to do with what you and I often think of when we think of the word prophets. Like, there's no teaching, there's no proclamation, there's no declaration of the will of God. 
Most people think that this type of ecstatic worship or, or, or trance-like behavior was typical maybe to something of, like shamanism or something like that where people, um, you, you know, breathe in chemicals or, uh, or certain smokes and get themselves into a frenzied fit for, in this case, worship and uh, getting into a trance-like state. But whatever happened, the spirits involved and caused these messengers, these really assassins of Saul's, to get caught up in the action. Three times it happens to different sets of people. And whatever the details of what was actually happening, the result is the same. There are powers in play. And in this case, it's the spirit of Yahweh. And he thwarts the will of Saul and the will of his men. Saul just sends more guys and more guys three times, right? And then finally, he's had enough and he comes himself. And that's what we do as human beings when we disregard the reality of the powers in play behind the scenes. We use our flesh, our might, our ideas, and our positional authority in order to try and make things happen in our own strength. And what's interesting is that in 1 Samuel 10, Saul comes to this very same place where Samuel's hanging out. And that's the first place that he's anointed king. In that chapter, Saul is also overcome by the Spirit of God, and he prophesies ecstatically. And in that case, all of this hoopla, the spirit falling on him and him getting ecstatic, it's all an affirmation of God's anointing of Saul. But in this chapter, Saul's character arc has come around now. And this time, the Spirit of the Lord overcomes him, but it's in debilitating fashion. In chapter 10, Saul is affirmed by the Lord's Spirit. In chapter 19, he's laid low, humiliated, literally naked, on the ground all day. The message? It's that God makes us, and God can take away. The result? While Saul is laying naked on the ground, prophesying whatever that's looking like, David has all day to get away, far away from danger. And the meta meaning, there are powers in play. Saul has an entire army of Israel at his disposal, but against the powers of God in play, it is not nearly enough to thwart David and, and God's plan for David. And David, on the other hand, has, has wisdom and skill as a warrior. He's got the hearts of those closest to Saul. And yet, the reality is that without the power of God in play behind the scenes, Saul would eventually catch up with David and destroy him. So what do we do with all this knowledge, this weird story from thousands of years ago in 1 Samuel 19? If there are powers in play, God and evil and unseen forces, what do we do about it? Like, should we be freaked out? Should we despair? Should we fight somehow? The fact is that there are, there are unseen forces at work, both for us and against us, or rather, for God's kingdom or against God's kingdom. And throughout the ages, people have devised techniques and incantations and rituals to try and either do battle with these forces or, or to try and ward them off at best or to please them so they bug somebody else. It's kind of like, do you use mole traps or do you use the ammonia method? The ammonia pushes them into your neighbor's yard. You know what I mean? It's the conundrum of spiritual warfare. But the scriptures, the scriptures show us a God who is not at the mercy of evil at all. 
He's above all powers. His will is unstoppable. The scriptures tell us that we're not to be about or worried about techniques, but we are to be people who trust. We're not to be about magic or method, but we are to be about obedience. We're to trust in and have obedience to the living God. Prayer is the language of trust. Prayer is the posture of obedience. So whether we're struggling with the problem of world hunger or the opioid crisis or systemic racism or our own internal battles with mental health and personal relationships, we will just spin our wheels in vain if we're not inviting, trusting in the sovereign God to help us. David's trust in the Lord, you know, when he fought Goliath, when he had to stay alive, when Saul's pursuing him, or when he's winning his battles against the Philistines, that's all happening because God is with him. And it points to Jesus, who trusted the Lord, his father, who met the fierce, carnal power of the Roman Empire with trust and faith faith in the way of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did not defeat the forces of evil by getting a big gun and taking out the Romans John Wick style, right? He he didn't do battle with the evil one by kicking the door of hell down as if hell had a door. That's another pop culture thing. Um, and, And battling the black goo monster from Stranger Things. Like Jesus didn't have that kind of encounter with with the powers at play behind the scenes. Jesus prayed in the garden until the capillaries in his face bled. And there he learned that he'd have to undergo what the world would see as a defeat on the cross. And then what happened? See, Jesus trusted the Father, trusted in the powers at play behind the thin veneer of the world. And the Father vindicated the Son, not merely by raising him from the grave, but by setting him in the position of honor and glory above all kings and all nations for and authorities for all time. And after Jesus ascended, his future disciple Paul came to know his power and the reality that appears to be weakness to the world is used by God with great power and effectiveness. And one of Paul's letters, the one that gets around to the Ephesian church, he wrote about how to navigate this world where there's powers in play behind the scenes. And the first thing he does is to assure us that Jesus has overcome those powers. So The same Jesus who came to seek and save the lost, the same Jesus who was kind to women and children, who reached out to the poor and the outsiders and the rich young rulers and the tax collectors who were corrupt, that same Jesus who we see as trustworthy and approachable and kind and full of grace and mercy, that same Jesus has dominion over all powers and dominion over every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That's in the end of Ephesians 1. Jesus has authority over all of these powers, and that means that those who have placed their trust, their faith in the life of Jesus do not have to be anxious about the powers in play behind the scenes. We're invited to find our strength in Jesus. And the, the call is, is to be strong, that, be strong in the Lord 
Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This is from the letter to the Ephesians. Put on the armor of God. We're to find good news, not a list of things to do. So let me just talk about this real quick. We are invited to find our strength in Jesus. The call is to be strong in the Lord. That's in grammar people. That's in the passive voice in English and in Greek. It's something that Jesus provides for us. Be strong in the Lord isn't something you can just do. It's like, Lord, I want to be strong in you. He gives us the ability to be strong in the Lord. We're to stand firm in the victory that God has already won, not in some war that we've got to pull up our bootstraps and battle in our own strength. And putting on the armor of God, oh, this, is, this one's been taught so many different ways. Paul in some prison looking at soldiers with their armor on, and, and, and then, you know, some people teach that, oh, you got to put all this stuff on, and then you can kick the devil's butt. No, you can't, <laughs> but you don't have to. Here's the good news of this passage. All of these pieces of armor are drawn from words of prophecy in the scriptures. You could look every single one up, and in those passages, what you see constantly is Yahweh, God himself, going to battle for his people. So when we're putting on the armor of God, we're not preparing to go into battle, what we're doing is we're saying, I trust you, God. You are the warrior. You're the one who fights these battles. You're the one who has dominion over all these powers in play behind the scenes. I'm putting my faith in you. I won't be anxious in the midst of a world that looks like it's turned upside down because you promised to make it right. Yes, there are powers in play in the unseen realms. But the good news is that in Christ, we don't need to fear for the final outcomes. God's kingdom will come, and his will will be done. The question is, will we place our trust and confidence in the risen and reigning Jesus, or will we indeed find ourselves at odds with his inbreaking kingdom? I'm going to choose the former with God's mercy and grace. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, I thank you that in a world that causes so much anxiety, just watching the news and our interactions with people in our lives, Lord, there's, it seems like there's so many reasons to fear and forces that we feel so powerless uh, to influence. Or we might even feel powerless over the influences in ourselves. We might have people in our lives who we love dearly who are going down a path and we just feel, God, we can't, we can't convince them to turn a different way. We can't, our advice isn't working. Our authority only stretches so far. Lord, help us to put our faith in you, to turn our worries into prayers, to put our anxiety into trust that you are the sovereign God, that you have authority over all things, that there is no evil as strong as you, and that you are seeing this world of yours and these lives of ours to a good and glorious end. And Lord, I pray for forgiveness for uh, the ways that we have put our own kingdoms, our own agendas ahead of yours. In your mercy, Lord, won't you point those things out to us so that we can repent and turn and find a fullness of life in you. Amen.